All right. How's it going? Matt here. So bit of a change from regular service this. You're about to listen to the very first episode of Looking Sideways uh, Roundtable, I'm calling it. A new format I've decided to experiment with, which initially at least is going to be exclusively for paid subscribers. So if you listen to this, firstly, thanks very much because you are indeed a paid subscriber. You've either gone all in with a paid subscription to support what I do, or you've been gifted one by me as thanks for being such a staunch supporter of Looking Sideways. So thanks. Anyway, the idea for this one came about when one of my fellow panellists today, John Weaver, asked me if I'd thought about doing an extended housekeeping corner. Um, And I kind of like that idea. I have sort of thought about that before. But in the end, I like this idea a bit better. It's originally what I thought Looking Sideways was going to be this. Um, Obviously, the panel show format is a well-worn podcast trope. But in the end, you know, Looking Sideways became what it is. But I've always enjoyed these obviously the one with tim and gandal every christmas is kind of similar um so i wrote in john as a co-host i asked my pal lauren mccallum to be our second co-host rapidly thought of a format and some topics to discuss and then i invited friends of the show liam griffin mikey lay and ben mundy to contribute to this episode so that's what you're about to listen to um like I say, a bit of an experiment above all else, really. So love to hear what you think. Please leave a comment on the Substack page with feedback. If you've got any ideas for guests, questions you want us to discuss, anything that springs to mind, get in touch, let me know. Um, I'd love to hear it. Um, we're going to be doing these every six weeks or so initially. I mean, it took us like three weeks to even get a date to do this one. But this is what we did and I really enjoyed it. Hopefully you will too. Here is me, Lauren, John, and guests in a round table. Enjoy. So, looking sideways, round table. That's what I think I'm going to call it. it unfortunately, Alex Honold's group podcast is also called Round Table, but I'm going to I'm going to go with it. So, I'm with uh, John Weaver. Say hello, John. Afternoon, morning. And Lauren McCallum. How are you, Lauren? I am winning. Champion. <laughs> winning at life. I'd say you win it. Well, you're the you're the one that's got the bottle of Peroni at midday on a Sunday. So I'd say yeah, I'd say you're winning. Yeah. John, you're in Arisera, obviously. Yeah. A, a rare moment at home. So what have you been up to since we like you've been around a lot, right? You've been traveling Copenhagen, Paris. What's been going on? Um, we went to, I took, actually took, uh, Marika, my wife and the kids up to Norway. We had to go up there for work. Um, so went there for five days. My dad was going to come, but he got COVID the day before. So then he couldn't come to look after the kids. So turned up at the office, just like, yeah, that guy with kids with iPads to watch. Um, and they sat there for a couple of days while we worked, um, went over to Stockholm for a couple of days and then finished the week in Copenhagen for Copenhagen open. Uh, which was amazing. Yeah, how how is that? Because that that is getting like obviously becoming like a really sort of pivotal event, isn't it? Now in the calendar, like there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on, basically. Yeah, have you have you been before for that? No. So it's uh, the people who organise it. There's actually Simon, I believe he's English. Uh, he's employed by Copenhagen City Council. And they put it on through the arts and leisure part of the council. And basically they take over the city for a week. 
skateboarding events every day and there's no real sort of schedule every day there's like a text or an email that goes out meet at this plaza and then all of a sudden like seems like a thousand two thousand kids turn up on bikes skate a feature and then after a couple of hours they're right we're going to move to another part of the town and it just goes around like that um and it's to me it was so refreshing i mean i've obviously been to a lot of snowboard events been to a few of the sort of wsl surf events recently and to go to an event where there's no wristband, no VIP section, no, I don't know, free beer sponsor. And it's just hanging out. And I always think about it from like, if you're an American kid or someone who's not really traveled and you end up in Copenhagen on a rental bike with your yeah. skateboard and your backpack, just taking over this whole city. It, it was amazing. It was really good. And what, so you, you lot did some, so you were there with DB and you did, you did something, right? What were you doing? Were you because are you are you working with some skaters like what what you're up to with, with with that thing so we did an event on the final night we managed to get a, a space in the in the bar uh oh sorry we got a bar next to where the f- uh, main skate event was supposed to be but it actually started raining so then we sort of brought the skate event into the bar where we had this space um and we had a gallery with solo mag uh skate magazine and so a bunch of people turned up for that there was a small skate jam and yeah, it was kind of our first like foray into skateboarding, trying to do it slowly, make sure we make the right context, do it sort of respectfully and stuff. Um, but we've just hired a new guy for skate. So we went over there with him and sort of, yeah, spent the weekend just learning about Copenhagen and the sort of opportunities there. So it was, um, yeah, it was a very, very refreshing thing. And I, I think I've seen it a little bit with DIYX, what's happening in Innsbruck in snowboarding that Ethan's organizing. And it feels like that's a similar well, I know Ethan's taken his lead from this event, so it's a really good one to kind of see what it is. Yeah, that's fair, isn't it? It's got the same sort of kind of basically meet here and let's see what chaos unfolds kind of vibe to, hasn't it? Basically, yeah, yeah. Uh, Lauren, so I, I I wanted to quickly ask you about your new job, which sounds um, quite responsible. <laughs> so, <laughs> so obviously, obviously, you're still doing protect our winners. Um, but then this new role, Cairngorm National Park, right? So what what is it you're actually doing? So yeah, I mean, uh, huge responsibility. But uh, I have become a directly elected member of the Cairngorm National Park Authority's board. Um, so essentially, they're to guide the the strategy, the direction. Um, you know, help the CEO and the staff and really just try and make uh, the National Park good for, you know, people, place and culture. Um, And, you know, huge climate change targets, uh, you know, huge economic um, targets as well, and uh, big contentious topics like housing at the minute. Highlands is a proper housing crisis um, and the parks, the planning authority. so yeah, it's uh it's a it's a huge role and um and super varied and obviously those things sometimes you know conflict as well. So it's trying to work out um uh through yeah, through all of that sensibly. So um yeah, I'm uh, I'm really enjoying it so far. Did you have to campaign then? Because you were elected basically. Yeah. So um, That's quite mad. What was that like? Well, it was it was a bit weird. So um, there was a couple of people that started. And then when I threw my hat in the ring, 
the other people pulled out. <laughs> so in the end, no, no, I didn't like, have... like look out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like my mate Ian was like, "Oh God's sake, if you're going to do it, I'm not going to do it." <laughs> like so, and then the other person, I think, um, yeah, was uh, didn't want to do it. So actually, in the end, um, the, it was it was just me standing. So um, yeah, it was. Uh, it was still a bit mad though, like having to kind of write your statement and, and canvas and that sort of stuff. But, um, is it, yeah, is it giving you an appetite for, uh, you know, are we going to see Lauren McCallum S MSP at any point soon? Don't think so. I mean, no. it wouldn't really be hard though. I mean, look at, look at the caliber <laughs> coming out of Hollywood at the minute. I mean, it's almost tempting, but I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think that's quite for me just yet. Yeah. So, how, and you're so you balancing that with the protects our winter's work as well. Then, so it's like a, you've kind of got two jobs at the minute, then basically. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a three it's a three day a month commitment, four day. Part right. To put your sort of reading because there's, there's so much reading to do. Um, so um, I've got ADHD. I'm super dyslexic. So I've actually been finding that a little bit tough. Um, but it's just yeah something I've also just been enjoying like. Um, who thought, you know, who thought Laura McCallum would be into reading National Planning Framework 4 documents and that sort of stuff. But uh, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge role, but I'm finding it hugely responsible, you know, huge responsibility, but I'm finding it really rewarding and having sort of being directly responsible to the, to the minister. Well, it's probably a bit, of a bit of a step up, isn't it? In terms of like actual, you know, the work that you're doing has a real tangible impact on like people's not only yeah. people's lives but the development of that um incredibly important part of the country which I assume is why you wanted to do it I imagine so you could have a say in that totally and I think um yeah it was really funny when I got elected I got this <laughs> letter from the minister that was like welcome now fucking behave yourself <laughs> um, <laughs> and um yeah I think you know like as any public uh, public body board you know I'm now under this kind of code of ethics and you know you can go to jail for, for things if you're, if you're not careful around you know planning and brown envelopes and all that sort of so there's, there's loads of like compliance that I've having having to wrap my head around as well but yeah that that's why I wanted to do it because um you know the national park is is huge here you know if the park aren't on site then things just aren't going to get done so, um, and they do, you know, they do a huge scope of work. You know, we're we're putting a bid in at the minute to the National Lottery Fund for forty-two million pounds for twenty projects, working with eighty-two partners. Like this is the sort of stuff that we're that we're talking about. So, yeah, it's massively exciting. Brilliant, nice. Well, what have I been up to? I uh, well, I went to the wave. That was fun. <laughs> I went with oh, tell it, tell it. Come on, give us a give us a review. I went with uh, Alex Weller. Obviously, Lauren, yeah. you know Alex pretty well. I think you know him a bit, John, as well. Yeah, he was yeah. over. Um, it was fun. Yeah. I mean, we, I surfed the Intermediate for the first time, uh, longboarded, which was really fun. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, just borrowed one of their, like, hipster foamies on the advanced, and it was, yeah, it was good. I mean, it's like when we went, John, last year, it was, you know, boardies, like, rash fest. Yeah, it was, it was good. Yeah, enjoyed it. Um, and then I am working on a documentary for Patagonia at the minute, which is um, 
slightly all-encompassing and fairly terrifying it's like a three-part um like in-depth audio documentary about uh you know the earth is our only shareholder announcement so massive topic um never done anything like it before insofar as like actually like a you know like a radio standard documentary um so that's keeping me pretty pretty busy so this can be broadcast on it'll go on looking sideways all right well Um, okay yeah it's like a little mini series um but like they're they're being like almost too too mellow about it for my liking um like they're they're so they're just like i just do it whenever it's done kind of thing Um, which is kind of nice but equally it's such a big thing and such a hard thing for me to do because it's such a new thing that i do find deadlines kind of useful in that because otherwise you just you know the garage the garage is never looks so clean you know it's like you end Mm -hmm. up you you end up oh maybe i will hoover the lawn again you know it's 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 kind of like that in it so um but yeah it's so it's i've been i've been spending like six weeks kind of thinking about it pretty i've started it and i've got a good idea so i realized that when i was in ventura in february i didn't ask half the questions i should have done so um i've been kind of that's one of the reasons i'm at alex actually to do another like round with him asking him a lot of questions about that um Mm -hmm. and planted the seed to finally try and get the Yvonne interview but still getting the whole like mm, yeah good luck with that but yeah Sometimes. so that's so that's so that's what I've been up to topic number one so obviously I posted this um well this all came about so I wanted to talk about the blog that Callum McIntyre wrote for me about activism and this all came about because I went to surface against sewage paddle out protest in Brighton, uh, which was probably about a month ago. That was like the height of the new, like the sewage crisis being in the news, beaches closing everywhere. Like, you know, this thing has never had more traction really, has it? You know, in terms of like, it's got mainstream media cut through. Everyone knows about it. And also, interestingly, it's a completely non-partisan issue. You know, it doesn't really matter, like whether you're left or right, shit in the sea is not good and mm-hmm. everyone agrees with that so i went to this protest kind of thinking that it was going to be really well attended and, and and engaged and there was probably i'm going to say about 200 people there which at first sight seemed like quite a good turnout but you know there's like 100 i don't know 200,000 people in brighton i'm going to say the brighton surf community probably numbers about 200 uh, i'm in a swimming whatsapp group that's got like 50 people in it or something so I was pretty underwhelmed. Um, I actually thought of you, Lauren, because I thought you'd probably laugh at, you know, me actually turning up to some kind of protest and then and then like when it doesn't go the way that I want, being all like fucking annoyed and oh, I'm gonna like really start going on about this now. Um so I so I because obviously I you know, that's your work, you know, like and you're like so one of the things so I started complaining well, I'm not gonna say complaining, but I started um pointing that out on Insta stories and um, Callum McIntyre, who's a, who's a mutual friend of mine and Lawrence incidentally fucking amazing snowboarder, like proper under the radar shredder, like lives lives in Norway, like Mm. just proper free rider, like out there having it humble as fuck as well. Anyway, he messaged me. He was like, I've got a bit of an idea for a 
you know, I've, I've been thinking about this topic, like how do we get our communities who should be really engaged, surf, skate, snow, um, how do we get people more interested? Can I write a story? So he wrote this great piece about disruptive activism and how um, the reasons that he thinks people are engaged and what we can do to try and get people more engaged, which went down... I'll leave aside the debate about the fact that I'll put it behind a paywall um, because everyone listening to this is a paid subscriber. Um, but yeah, I, th- I thought the reaction was really interesting. I think what the question I wanted to ask you, Lauren, is you're probably not surprised by the apathy and the difficulty in 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 getting this, it, the lack of engagement in these issues, right? Because it's literally the work that you do in Protect Our Witness to try and increase that engagement, right? So what, what do you put it down to like why you, i know you've read up Callum's piece i know you've got views on it but why why do you think people and, and and especially on an issue like water which is there's no there's no debate about that like you know it's not like climate change where you can understand that people have very different views on it like this is just a pretty clear-cut thing so why why do you think that we struggle to get people engaged in this type of conversation i think without going like <laughs> super out there uh, to start with but i think really it's just the it's it's just the aftermath of poison Ooh. yeah the poison of individuality you know it's been about since thatcher era it's all been about it's not about community it's about you it's about you progressing with your family and you like consuming resources to get ahead do better go farther you know all that sort of stuff and I think um and we've kind of talked about this before but I actually think our community is a lot more conservative than what we're giving it credit for and um and so I think people have really lost I think in in some ways that feeling of solidarity like true solidarity like like you know like you were saying these like shit in the water shouldn't be a political political issue and the things that really care about like the commons you know land air um sea water like these are things that you know we should just agree are you know for for everyone and so i just think like we've just been fed this individual individualistic narrative that we've bought into and that touch points of, you know, the unions. I get if you, so if you're thinking about sort of like solidarity, um, you know, you, you think about the sort of the trade union movement like that for, you know, better or worse is, is, uh, has kind of been dulled down quite a bit. Um, and yes, of course, some unions don't help themselves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think like there's just been a real lack of solidarity. Um, and yeah, we just haven't had that sort of touch point with it. I think for me, that's 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 what that is. Because like if you speak to my parents, my parents went to Canada. So I was born in Vancouver. They fucked off, I don't know, early 80s, 81, something like that, 80. Um, after, cause you know, after sort of Thatcher and especially in Scotland with poll tax and the mining strikes, and then, you know, fishing was decimated. And if you speak to my parents, like the, the touch points about where they campaigned with all of their friends and all of their community 
like we just we when you look at my generation and well, I'm 32 um we just haven't had that um and so I think it's just trying to kind of yeah build that confidence that we might have of course it's nuanced and we might have polar opposite um you know opinions on things like let's just all agree that like shit in the water is a terrible idea and we should all mobilize to get you know to 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 try and you know stop it um and so yeah i think i don't know that's my take on it i don't can, know what you guys Lauren, think. can i can i ask um what role does sort of apathy with government play into it because i again i don't live in the uk anymore but i read the english newspapers the british press and i just sort of and I hear it from my dad and I, sometimes you just sort of think, well, how much can you even trust? Again, everyone knows it's wrong. Um, you know, we had laws in COVID, which none of the elected politicians decided to actually obey, even though they set them. So I I just wonder how much apathy has to play into this because you sort of think these people know it's wrong, but they're profiting. So they're going to sort of turn a blind eye to the whole thing. And I just wonder how much sort of people in our generation just think, I'd rather spend my time doing other stuff, which is a terrible thing to think, but I do wonder if it's true. But it's true. We're in a time-squeezed, cost-of-living crisis where you've got to maximise your time so that you can, you know, work or work multiple jobs so that you can pay your rent and do this sort of stuff. Um, and uh, and I, 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 totally, I totally get that. And apathy is a huge part to play in it. Massive apathy will kill us apathy is going to kill us and none of these topics are going to get any better with a lack of engagement and it that's in fact so my opinion is like so people are like well what's the fucking point you know like like you say like the, the Tories are just going to do this we're going to do that yeah they, they are but it's only going to get worse if we don't engage like this is the whole point and they want you to think they want you to think that there's no point in engaging um because that leaves them to do carte blanche where you know there's not eyes on detail um and so i think think apathy is a huge part and then to that point like what is it about the french where they figured this out because it seems to me from the news that like if there's ever a reason to have a protest or a riot or shut a street the yellow vests come on and people are shutting down streets yeah i mean look at the pension Thing. I mean, that's yeah. like that was like a month's civil unrest. I mean, they literally nearly brought down the government, did it? For like, what did they do? Raise the pension age by five years or something? Like, no, one, one of the, yeah. Well, what yeah, it wasn't yeah. even, it wasn't even that significant, was it? Um, no. yeah, I mean, I think personally that, I mean, Lauren's obviously nailed it with the word apathy, really, in this country. There's a real fatalism in, in, in the UK that it, like, you can't really speak for for the states obviously it's almost too vast a topic and too too different but like in the uk there's there's just such a fatalism about it like you know well it's all fucked so we might as well not bother kind of thing but i i do i do think that a lot of it is obviously communication leadership as it as it always is you know these things like to if you're going to try and rouse people and that so i forwarded this to you lauren so i've been chatting to this listener this guy called hamish lawson and he he responded to this because I was asking people for um, listener and reader questions for this, and his kind of his kind of take on it was that he was he was basically suggesting that by you know 
promoting this, communicating this struggle, activism as like cooler you know, for one of a better. He was almost saying like, why can't we borrow the, the, the tactics of action sports brands? You know, like if, if, if brands want to get people to, 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 to buy their stuff by pushing them towards activities, there's a, there's a particular set of messaging that comes with that, which is, which is about risk, enjoyment, nature, you know, and he was basically saying that's what, what he thinks is missing from this conversation, because although obviously organizations like Protect Our Winters and Surfers Against Sewage do draw a connection between obviously our participation and, and the natural world, he, he was basically saying, let's make it more overt, let's, let's bring people along with that. I just wondered, you know, John, you've got a lot of experience in, in, in this game. Like, What do you think of that idea? It's, it's an interesting one because I think obviously – you know, you're working on something for Patagonia now. There was a bit of a sort of first past the post approach on that, where you feel that this that they they sort of nailed that corner. And I suppose other brands now are like, oh, we don't want to just come in and be the third or the fourth brand to do it. And unfortunately, it becomes a marketing conversation rather than a conversation about the actual point you're trying to get across, which I think is, and I suppose that's where organizations organizations like Protect Our Winters, One Percent for the Planet can be really useful because it means that you can at least do some work in that space or become B Corp certified, et cetera, um, without it just becoming a marketing thing. Because I think that's always the problem that it just becomes a bit of sort of not sport washing, but you know, you end up just sort of, Oh, we doing this just to make ourselves feel better, which shouldn't be the reason for doing it. Well, I think you can really see that with the conversation around the big C, you know, like that, like that, that there's a whole conversation going around the big C at the minute. Um, where the the surf industry are very much circling the wagons like they're basically by the sounds of it like not really having it um and i think that's probably going to get become quite a challenging conversation quite soon um but i think what what i find really baffling about that is like they're they're, they're the short versions they're a bit like we don't literally buy our neoprene from chloroprene rubber from that factory therefore this film is bullshit and therefore you can't make that connection like whatever but but i guess i guess like i think what I find quite baffling about that is that, is that, that some of those brands that are, you know, in the firing line by that film and are complicit in this conversation, it's a real opportunity just to take a leadership role. It's a real opportunity just to say like, actually, yeah, we, we're going to find out more about this and we're going to, you know, like we're, we're not just going to dismiss this out of hand because I, whatever you think about it, this is a really important conversation. Like the, the impact of our industry on the environment and on individuals. So we're just going to, do the work to find out and we'll you know like be inclusive be 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 forward thinking like rather than just immediately like no fuck that because we've got you know bottom line we need to adhere to and we've got i just i just find it links to what you're saying lauren about how conservative like this this game really is on a lot of levels you know like this lack of quite i mean for me that's quite basic comms the idea that you would you would look at that and think well here's here's a way of actually doing what we say we're into like which is like transparency you know activism sustainability all that stuff but when there is an opportunity as uncomfortable it is that no one wants to know on that level i mean you were shake you were nodding your head furiously there lauren i mean is that is that, yeah, something, yeah. Is that a picture that you you recognize oh 100 and you know it's and there's some brands that um you know some partnerships that we at protect our winters have kind of had to stop because it's just so transactional 
It's like, no, you're like, you're here to support our work, not like how much clicks and whatever, like this post got, like, of course, like, um, invest, like, of course our work being, uh, you know, communicated successfully is important, but just because like you've, you know, you want to push a certain narrative to, you know, to, to get these figures about what this certain influencer has done. Like, that's not why you support Protector Winters. You support Protector Winters so that we can do the mo- like the, the organizing piece um, of, of activism, right? So you've got organizing and you've got mobilizing. And organizing takes all the time, all the money. That's like me, Dom, Lindsay, Adam, sitting there reading through documents, going through it with a fine tooth comb, you know, and I would love a campaign manager. I would love a policy manager, you know, but brands are just not wanting to invest in that work. What they want to invest in is is that forward-facing piece, but even still not then, because when it comes, because actually when it comes to the crunch, everyone would rather just like not stick the head above the parapet or what John was saying, oh, but we don't want to do it because Patagonia's already done it. You're like, what the fuck? Like, you know, Jesus Christ, like you say, show some leadership. What is your communication? What is you, how are you going to communicate this with your brand and your followers? What matters to them? Like, take a minute and sit back. And so, you know, that organizing part you know, costs millions to do successfully. Um, but then where the brands can be really, really, really helpful is funding that organizing part because, you know, I don't think... Uh, I don't know, any particular brand staff want to be sitting in Westminster government policy and going through what was said in Parliament that day or whatever. Um, it's, it's funding that part. But when it comes to the mobilising, which is, like, to your original point, Matt, was going down to the beach, like, why weren't all those surf brands not like, or outdoor brands being like, get yourself to that beach at this time because it's important for us to mobilise and show the private work companies, the council, whatever it is, how important this is to Brighton, right? Yeah, I, I was I, I was baffled. But then if you can't get, like, individuals to turn up at that level, like people who are literally... I mean, I surfed with a mate um, in January and we got out, like, and it was low tide and we saw one of the overflow things, like, spewing out. I mean, I don't know if it was shit or not, but it didn't look good. Um where we, like into the water we'd just been surfing he didn't turn up <laughs> like, and he knew about it and when i and when i put it on like the brighton's whatsapp surf group like a lot of people just took the piss a lot of people were like one guy sent um who's a mutual friend of all of ours who i'm not going to name and shame but he sent a picture of fucking swampy <laughs> you know and i was a bit like wow okay that's that's what we're dealing with here you know we're dealing we're dealing with with that anyway Anyway, I just well, well, well. Hamish had one more question, um, and then we'll shift. We'll shift it on. Which kind of, which kind of. I mean, you've already answered it, but I'll ask it explicitly. To what extent do the goals of businesses within the outdoor industry and organisations combating climate change align? Is there an alignment between businesses and organisations, you know, and, and NGOs, or is it all basically very misaligned at this point? Yeah, I mean, there's huge alignment, like massive alignment. And not to do the whole obvious thing, like, oh, you can't, you know, sell product on a burning planet. But like, you know, it's, 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 it's true. Like if we, like, if we just let 
all the sewage go into the water, so nobody, so people are getting, I don't know, E. coli and all, I don't, I don't know, all the diseases you can get from surfing. They're not going to go surfing anymore. You know, like <laughs> if we keep emitting the emissions and the heat. So I live, uh, I live just outside Aviemore now, ten minutes outside Aviemore, and I live in the in the in the forest. We hadn't had rain in three weeks. I'm in the freaking. You know, I'm in the Highlands where it rains all the time. I'm in the Cairngorm Mountains where it hits it and rains, you know, like, um, and so the impacts are, are, are happening right now. And so we, and we can all see them and that's going to impact. That's going to be bad for business. It's going to be bad for our sports and it's going to be bad for the culture and everything that comes with it. And so there's huge alignment. I think at the minute, it's just trying to get that, like I guess what we would call carbon literacy or that like, like up in organisations so that we can give th- these decision makers within these brands and within these organisations the confidence to talk about it, to lead with it in their teams and to to do something about it. Because at the minute there's huge overlaps in uh, in what we're what we're trying to achieve, the audiences that we're trying to reach the resources that we can share, you know, so we're not doing duplicated work, all that sort of stuff. And yeah, there's, 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 there's huge alignments. And yeah, I guess, sorry to keep going back to this organizing and mobilizing piece, but like that is so, so, so important. I've spent quite a lot of time with businesses in the last few weeks and me and Don Winter, who's the head of programs at Protector Winters, um, have been developing this sort of workshop for brands because if we can try and see the brands see the value in that organizing piece, that policy work, that, you know, that real nitty gritty stuff, and then they can help us do what they do best, which is mobilizing people to go buy a product or go to attend an event or to focus that, you know, on turning up to a protest or, you know, signing up to a newsletter or doing whatever action. That's what the brands are best at. And also, like, I think, I don't know what, we've got like 12,000 followers on Instagram. We're not going to get very far. But if we get like, I don't know, DB, Patagonia, um, North Face, well, like now we're talking about like 15 million in comms, you know, when you put that all together. So doing that, I guess, in, in a more corporate talk, that B to B to C model works way more effectively. But we just need to, there's a huge alignment. We just need to give people the confidence to, to do it. I think sometimes on that one as well, it's so we're we're applying for B Corp status this year. Um, so we should be getting there towards the end of the year. And it's funny because the people who we're doing our sort of certifications with, they're like, oh, you guys are doing good in this space. You should talk about it more. But I'm always a bit like, to your point earlier, Matt, about putting your head above the parapet of like, when should you do that? Like, when do you sort of feel validated that you've kind of done enough work in the space before you can? But I also think there's probably a moment where myself brands like ours should then work with someone like yourself Lauren and just sort of you know get that guidance of right this is where we're up to in our journey right how should we approach this next stage because yes to your point if if all of these brands get together and the combined following it's a pretty huge footprint yeah and you know how are we shaping the culture as well you know like what how are we shaping this like yeah, Matt's going to laugh at me because, uh, you know, I keep saying that we get the scene that we make. 
And I was over in Aberdeenshire uh, a couple of weeks ago doing an event with Specialized, you know, the big bike brand, and uh, in Bankery, which is a huge, well, huge, but like extremely wealthy town just outside Aberdeen, which is on the people who live oil, in it generally. Oil, have oil well. money. Oil, oil money. money yeah. Super well off oil and gas. Like my parents couldn't afford Bankery. There's lots of other people that, you know, couldn't, couldn't do it. So we did an event there about uh, a man in Carpenter who's one of our ambassadors, ex-downhill world champion. And her she was screening her new film called Winds of Change, which is about the impact on mountain biking through climate change, through winter storms. So like Arwen, um, Malik, you know, we had like, those three big name storms that winter, which just took out the east, northeast trail system. And the Scottish government gave people 400k to to start opening up these trails or re-diverting them and um so like you can see the impact the northeast had a huge impact and afterwards uh, the next day i was on a ride out i couldn't believe well i could believe because i deal with this every single day but you know <laughs> we've got some of the some of the attitudes from those that were at that brand that at that brand day and that there was a demo there was a bike demo day the next day with like quite a few mountain bike brands you know the big ones i'm not going to start naming and shaming but the big ones um and they were they were just like yeah well what's the point yeah but what about yeah but what about and, and you're like but yeah but we, we have to start somewhere like can you not see we've just spent two hours last night I got up all the data about wind and flooding and all that sort of stuff. Like, can you not see, like, this is impacting. If people can't go buy mountain biking because the, all the trees have fallen over, they're not going to buy a new fucking bike, are they? Like, you know, because, so, of, like, of course it's impacting our industry. But the what really struck me is I think mountain biking is quite behind in, in, climate, in climate terms. Well, I mean, it's, I'm sorry, everyone. It's it's definitely got that slight petrol heady yeah. <laughs> vibe about it. Um, yeah, it. A lot a lot of people just switched off. Sorry about that. Um, but you know what I mean. Like there's there's that, that it has that strain to it definitely, which is um, quite proudly going to be disinterested in 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 a lot of that type of conversation. Really, I mean, equally you should say there's things like trash free trails. There's there's a, there's a really strong like what Manon's doing. Um, but I think your point you make about how far behind this, we all are in this conversation is like collectively we as a, as an industry is, is, is really, is really, that's the point here, isn't it? You know, like for, as that anecdote demonstrates as, as what, what we've been talking about here, like there's, we've got a long way to go before we get to like, you know, ground zero really in terms of when we can actually start to shift things because there's so, and I think that's why I was so interested in this when i went to that protest and why i've sort of been talking about it because i think i just made the assumption that and rebecca olive i did a did a post uh, a blog from her last week and and um eski britain was really good on this when we talked like just the disconnection between like us and the natural world even though we spend a lot of time immersed in it you know like eski and rebecca were, were really interested i thought on the idea that our relationship in this industry to the natural world is very much like based upon what it can do for me, whether that's about mental health, whether that's about um, having a good time going mountain biking, surfing, rather than like, well, where do I fit into this eco, literal ecosystem? And 
what can I do to improve that ecosystem? There's still, that's the issue, isn't it? You know, like that's why my mate is sending swampy memes rather than turning up at like a paddle out after he's swum through shit like a few months earlier. All right, Matt here. That went well, didn't it? Um, Impressed by Lauren, she got Bloody Mary delivered halfway through that segment, which goes to show how she rolls. Um, Anyway, in the next section, I welcomed Ben Mundy, surf journalist, and Mikey Lay, professional longboarder, surf journalist, and editor of Wavelength magazine, on to discuss the recent controversy about leashes or leg ropes being made mandatory in Byron Bay. Uh, Now, Weaver was supposed to join as well, but his internet in Norway was dodgy, so I ended up taking this one alone. Hey, like I say, this is a bit of an experiment. Anyway, here's me and Ben with some input from Mikey. See what you reckon. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Matt Bart. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. We just lost John because he's he's in Norway and his internet failed, so... Yeah, Nor- Norway's famous for lack of internet, isn't it? Yeah, he's like, oh, my Airbnb doesn't have the internet. It's like, oh, okay. So I'm going to play you. So we're here to discuss this leash um, conversation. I'm going to play you Mikey Lay, friend of the pod, friend of ours, wavelength editor, professional longboarder. I'm going to play you his voice note on this topic, and then we'll have a chat. So see what you reckon. Howdy, Matt. Howdy, guests. And hi, listeners. Um, Mike Lay here, just checking in with my take on the the leash mandate thing um, that is gone into effect in Byron or will be going into effect. I think um, similar law or bylaw, whatever you want to call it, as ones that they have in um, Biarritz in southwest France. And uh, I found out after. My article went on Longboarder magazine that they also have one in the Philippines. They probably got them elsewhere as well. Um, but yeah, I just thought I'd give my take on it. Um, I've just finished work as a lifeguard. I'm still at the beach looking out at the sea now. We've got some swell, some longboarders out there. Some of them aren't wearing leashes. Um, so yeah, I just thought I'd, I'd also just say that I don't represent the RLI or lifeguarding at all. Um, and what I say is probably outside of their official position, which I imagine would be that all surfers should wear leashes. And I agree with them to a large extent. Um, I think 99% of surfers should wear leashes, but I do think there is a case where longboarders of a certain level um, are better off not wearing one. Um, there's there's arguments about like the length of leashes and the length, length of boards and um and then being a safety net for surfers and that's absolutely true i've seen a lot of surfers ditch their longboards or their mini miles because they've got the safety of a leash and then they've got this big flailing thing behind them um, and they ditch without looking you know they don't know how to duck dive they don't know how to hold onto their board it absolves them of a certain level of personal responsibility um but that's not the leash's fault that's the operator of that craft's fault um so people should be more educated in that respect. Um, but where, where I think maybe, or where I think definitely people should have a free choice is if you are at a certain level riding a longboard, the leash literally becomes a tripwire. It it becomes an absolute hindrance to uh, a rider's ability to, to longboard to their fullest extent. Um, 
And in some manoeuvres cases, it just makes it impossible. Like you cannot do a hang heels and run back switch if you're wearing a leash, it will wrap around your legs. Um, that's just the way it is. Um, I fortunately and luckily I've been lucky enough to surf a lot and become a longboarder of a certain level and I don't wear a leash when I longboard. I also don't longboard when it's over head high. Um, it's a small wave thing. As a lifeguard, I also don't longboard when it's super busy on the inside. As a rule, I generally try to surf where it's not very busy. I like bad waves over crowded good waves. Um, so yeah, there are caveats to that good longboarder thing. If it's super busy, don't bother. The answer for me wouldn't be putting a leash on because it does inhibit my surfing that much. It would just be, I just wouldn't surf if it was that busy. Um, but then I'm, lo I'm looking out now and there's a couple of longboarders who definitely should be wearing leashes who aren't. So there is the image thing as well. I know for sure that a lot of longboarders don't wear a leash because it's the cool thing not to wear them. Um, but I would argue that on top of being cool, because I imagine it is does seem cool, um, it's, it's a practical measure. And the longboarders, the two longboarders that I'm looking at now who are not wearing leashes, they're... They should be wearing them because they're not at the level where the leash is inhibiting them. You know, their, their cross-stepping is not that good. It's not that quick. It's not that technical. They're kind of just hanging on. Um, and for that reason, they should be wearing a leash until they get to that level. Um, yeah, so this is, uh, you got in touch with me, Matt, because I wrote a piece for Longboarder magazine just talking about it. It was kind of clickbaity, but it is a, it's a contentious issue. Um, we had a few comments on there, people on their, on the Instagram that was linking people through to the piece. People getting heated, people getting upset about it. Um, and people just saying it should be, it should absolutely, everyone should wear a leash all the time, which everyone's entitled to their opinion, but it is a, it's a joyful thing, not wearing a leash. It really is lovely. So I'm going to cling on to that. Not cling. I'm just going to, not wear a leash. And I don't think it should be mandated. I think surfing is an area of life where um, the feds shouldn't stretch out into, hey, that's just me, libertarian Mike. Um, thanks for your time, guys. Hope you're having a good chat and a good summer so far. Cheers and gone. He's, he's a good lad, isn't he, Mike? I like Mike. Yeah, we like Mike Lake. Yeah. Yeah. Before before we get started, you know what? I just remembered my only you're gonna love this. My only time I ever surfed a longboard without a leash. So do you remember when you gave me that Barbados trip? I do. Yeah, because you every we, day. We won't we won't go into the what happened there, but basically you blagged an all expenses surf trip to Barbados and you ended up giving it to me for for a for a long list of boring reasons. So I went and did that trip. And it was at Zed's. You you know Zed's, don't you? Um, and so I was. Uh, I mean, I I mean, I'm still obviously, as you know, terminal intermediate. Fuck me, I was pretty intermediate back then. And uh, I was surfing with a guy called Chris Thompson, who coincidentally is the publisher of Longboarder Magazine. Um, at the time, he ran uh, a holiday company called Arant Surf, and he's the guy that had paid for that trip on the PR tip. Great guy, had a good laugh, amazing surfer. And we went and surfed. So Zed had this like rack of 
quite weird experimental long boards who like the wavy edges you might know what brand like what who the shaper was and, and all that so chris was surf we we're surfing freights and i was on like um one of the the, the rental you know hard top longboardy things and chris goes do you want to go on this and i was like yeah cool all right um didn't even think they didn't have a leash on it so ju- got on this board got a wave and then jumped off <laughs> and, the, and this very expensive board sailed into the rocks um and got fucking caned and uh <laughs> and I, absolute kook levels and so obviously i was like oh fuck like and uh and chris was like oh you know that's a bit orcs um so we went back anyway and and zed was incredibly gracious about that and basically said well you know whatever these things happen um don't worry about it just you know he didn't even ask me to pay for it i think probably because he knew i was like the journalist guy um anyway so then i took one of his other boards out when it was um quite sort of head high um and the leash snapped and that one went into the rocks as well um (laughs) (laughs) it happens I just remembered that when I was when we were listening to that voice note. But anyway, anyway, back back to the the, the topic at hand. So that's Mike's take. So give give us the context. What's actually going on here? It's in Byron Bay, right? That this has kind of happened. So what is the crack? Well, the crack was there was an incident um, at the start of the year, I think, where a surfer was hit by a longboard, a leashless one, um, and cracked him in the. Um, I don't even remember hit him in the head, but he had a almost a fatal injury basically he was lucky he, he bled out cut his artery uh he was lucky to survive um and then post that he went quite public saying this is out of control you know i've almost been killed um it obviously been an issue that had been sort of pardon the pun floating around for a while but the um byron council said that mandated that yeah you had to wear a, a leg rope as australians call it I will apologise to European listeners that I'll keep calling it a leggy or a leg a rope. Leggy, a, a leggy, mate. Or, or a leash. They got banned and you had to wear one and the maximum penalty was up to $1,000, $1,000 Australian dollars. And that's just, where so this is just in Byron? It's this is just, like, I'm pretty sure it's a council a council thing. So the council run the basically the people who put the flags up. You know, I mean, th- th- there are rules in place around surfing already in a, in Australia in, in lots of places, and that was a new one that was easily put in. So I, I'm, you, you might need to double-check that, but I'm pretty sure it's just a, a council-run thing at the moment. I mean, they don't go around with, like, sort of leased cops on jet skis with handing out fees, but, yeah, it has been put in place, and that caused a lot of the controversy. Because uh, I first... You know, like a lot of people, I read Lauren Hill's piece, friend of the show, and uh, that was for like the Roaring Forties Patagonia blog, wasn't it? And Lauren, I think it's fair to say, is in the Mike camp, um, very, very much against this um, this rule. Um, I think what's interesting, really, and one of the reasons I wanted to discuss it is because it's one of those it's one of those kind of flashpoints, isn't it, where like the real the, the real world if you like or non-surf culture is directly clashing with with surf culture and and you know there's so many layers to it you said you've been researching it presumably you were as interested in it and i was for the the sort of for this exact stuff like what it what it kind of you know it's, it's a culturally quite interesting story isn't it yeah well you know i think the the rise you know as longboarding as as 
a, a thing that lots and lots more people are doing all the time means that it's a lot more, you know, if this, this argument five, probably 10 years ago wouldn't have been a thing because there wouldn't have been enough long borders to cause a fuss about it. So there's, the, you know, that's involved. I mean, the, the pass at Byron Bay is a unique lineup and environment in terms of the wave is, I don't know if anyone's ever been there, but it's this sort of perfect longboarding wave that runs down this beautiful bay. It's fast. It doesn't break very big. It's usually pretty forgiving. So it's just this, you know, if you could dream of a perfect way to surf a longboard on and you were beginning to surf, you would, you would, you would do that. So it's crowded. It's at one of the most busiest spots in Australia. So that, it is a unique situation, but as Mike said, it's 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 not just there; it's it's elsewhere. Um, yeah, so it, you know, I can see why it's caused a bit of a kerfuffle. Um, yeah, Lawrence P said lots of good. I th- I thought, but you know, she was she catched in her own terms, and and how you know she grew up in a place where she didn't have crowds, and she she um you know she didn't really need to to worry about it too much, but at, at Byron Bay she does. But I think Mike summed it up pretty well is that, you know, the argument about that tripping up when you're doing quite expert manoeuvres is a real thing for, obviously, as Mike said, you know, and and Lauren's a great surfer and these surfers, you know, can't do their manoeuvres or their type of surfing with Allegro. That's what happens. But I would say that they are such a tiny percentage of the population, which Mike alluded to as well, that I don't know if that, you know, those those people are that worried about it you know they're, they're such a small subset of the population that that are good enough that that's a worry and then if they're that good enough they can usually go and find a wave on their own and surf without a leash and they're so proficient that they're not going to lose their board it's going to be such a rare rare occurrence and they're so they're not, aware they're not, they're not going to do with me in uh no it us whereas most people are like even you know I, i've surfed without leg ropes because a lot of the pro surfers like the guys used to watch when i was growing up what like they didn't wear leg ropes and often they don't wear it in heats because it means it stops you from falling off right it's a way of you know you're not gonna you're gonna do 90 percent or 80 percent and so i used to do that but then just invariably no matter how good a surf you are like a board's gonna go somewhere where you don't the ocean is gonna sort of dictate where you know what's gonna happen so i think it's pretty irresponsible personally that not not to wear one. Not to wear one. If you're not at that elite level, I mean, there's no way of like means testing that, you know, but I still think. That's the thing, isn't it? Because, you know, from what Mike was saying, you know, he was like, obviously did that voice note from uh, Gwimba where he's a lifeguard. So he says he's like watching a couple of people surfing. I get. I guess if he's like going to go out and, say, you know, if someone's going to going to say to these two people, like you should be wearing a leg row, they're probably they're probably not going to be that happy about that. Surfers notoriously being able to judge their own ability, of course. You know. <laughs> well, yeah, humans in general. But <laughs> I reckon, um, like Lauren said in her piece, and I know what a lot of people are saying, we don't need regulation in, in the lineup. That You know, a government decree or, as um, Mike said, the feds coming in is not what surfing needs because, um, you know, the surfing lineup is a beautiful thing in that it's, controlled by people without you know written rules you know it's an unwritten code but some almost miraculous turn of events it kind of works 98 percent of the time yeah that's fair it, it, it you know no matter where it is in the world no matter how you do it that lineup code for whatever reason make, means most people get to enjoy surfing to some degree and that's a bit of a miracle um sure there's gray areas and that's where the you know the violence can seep in and the 
and the over the top. But there's dicks in every dicks in every sport. So I can understand why people, you know, don't want that sort of legislation to come in from somewhere else where the lineup etiquette, if observed properly, should do the job. But as a counter that, I would say that those people that are paddling out in the lineup and don't have control of their log and it's going through a crowd area like the pass, well, that's kind of absolutely undermining the, the you know the rule of law and just general safety so I can't, yeah you know, i could see where it's yeah. come from but I, I can see how they don't want the feds involved me neither but you know yeah what? i mean i mean laura makes a really interesting point i think in that piece about she, you know one of the points she makes is like if you were actually bothered about lineup safety the, the best thing you could do is get every beginner to have a crash course in lineup etiquette basically um and which is a slightly separate issue really like but it nevertheless is a good point you know i guess it's i guess it's she's saying like well why you know if you're that arse why aren't you like dealing with the the obvious thing that you could deal with what what, what do you yeah. think of that what do you think of that well, argument well i can say i mean it's a bit idealistic isn't it and it's an un, un, unworkable like in an ideal world everyone would not wear leashes and they'd have complete control of their board but if you gave everyone that option at the start they'd just be sheer chaos so um I just think, yeah, yeah, that, you know, the community, her point is looking after itself and governing itself and coming up with a solution where, um, you know, this this issue is, you know, it, it is ironed out some way. But I don't know, when you're talking about people, you know, getting clonked in the head, um, you know, and it's anecdotal and, you know, I think she also mentions the data's a bit, you know, a bit, un, you know, who's done the data, who knows, but I just think, you know, these leg ropes, they keep the board attached to the person. Sure, that can cause, you know, when people fling it um, dangerously, so they're just beha- they're behaving in an unsafe manner. But I don't think that's, I think there's so many of them, you know, compared to the, the, the leashless crew that I reckon the majority is going to win on this case. I just think it's safer. I can, in the end, I, this is my personal opinion, I've got no idea if it's backed up, but I reckon there's going to be more injuries from, Lots of people not wearing their leash, and what's the, what's their reason? Unless they're elite, they just think it looks cool and it feels great. Well, yeah, so does driving naked down the M5, <laughs> out, you know, like with your <laughs> using your feet as a steering wheel and drinking a can out of your beer out of your feet. But it's not particularly safe, Matt, is it? No, no, no. You know, and you, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to like curb those instincts to drive naked with you using your feet on the steering wheel while exactly. also schooling a lager. I mean, it's part of being. It's. I mean, it's the. Interestingly enough, Ben, I've been reading a little bit about the uh, the argument about free will today in the self and um, how we how we have a role in society. And you know, you've you've kind of nailed it there. Like you, you are you you are that's that's a Kantian line of uh, logic you've just come up with there. So you know. Well, you are a bit. You are a bit of a cant, so like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I can be a bit of a cant sometimes, Matt. But um, yeah, I mean, also, I think, I think the other thing is that in realistic, I don't know how many of these, look, this law, how many people is it going to affect a, a tiny proportion, and then how many of those tiny proportion are actually going to get, um, at, you know, fined or arrested is going to be even smaller. So I think in the scheme of things, we're talking about a pretty. A niche of a niche of a niche. A niche of a niche, but still worth a podcast, Matt. Don't get me wrong, mate. Don't get hey, me wrong. Still, topical. Still worth chatting about. Topical. Yeah. When was? Have yeah. you ever been longboarding? Yeah, yeah, loads. Yeah, more and more as I get. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, so I didn't grow up with it, but you, of course I you should, live in I, you live in England, so of course you. Well, do. I should have done more. You know, growing up, it was I was 
you know, that classic sort of 90s shortboard with shortboard or bus. But, um, yeah, so I, I will say, and I don't know the culture as well, the, like the logging culture and, and that, uh, you know, I'm not, a, you know, I've seen it and I've been around it, but I'm not, I'm not in it. So that's why some people were saying, well, you just don't know the feeling. You don't know how it affects you as a, as a surfer. And, that, and that's an absolute fair point. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, yeah, and there's also, you know, and Lauren's also like, is it a land grab? You know, is it by starting off with a leash law, is are they just going to keep starting to add more and more regulations in surfing? And you know, that's that's a possibility and probably worth worrying about. But I'm not sure how how much of it is. Um, and like, there's already there's a few rules around. Like, you know, you can't surf in the flags. You know, that's a, a basic one. But surfers listen to that. There's parts in Australia that. There's only certain times of day you can surf, so it's you know there's no jet skis in certain spots, but so we've kind of the, there is rules at the beach which we follow, and this this might be one. Also, one last point: Australia is so heavily regulated, they just love a fucking rule. Like the just as a general, like the Aussies, you know, for all our supposed laid backness and all that and free and easy nature, like Australia's a heavy. You've been there, mate. Your sister lives there, and you might have seen it. It's just a heavy regulated kind of place, you know. On on all fronts, you see it in line is probably like that culturally. They just kind of love to put a law when there isn't one, and so yeah, <laughs> like whether it's sporting events or security or police, yeah, that's another little factor to it. Well, thank you, mate. Final question: Who's going to win the Ashes? Um, I think Australia going to win the Ashes. I said that before the series, and I think um, uh, yeah, I think your Baz ball is going to just going to meet a grizzly grizzly end to some fine Australian cricket I'm hoping Matt but um it's going to be fascinating to watch it's going to be close indeed indeed well thanks Cobber appreciate it my pleasure anytime Matt so we are joined by Liam Griffin hello Liam how are you good man how you doing I'm good time we got over there Vermont Sunday morning nine-ish half nine no half eight half eight wow yeah legend well thanks for doing it so we were chatting on Instagram about new developments in competitive snowboarding um probably you're as much of a geek as i am about this if not more so so i thought it'd be great to get you on to because it's a significant but under the radar development this would you agree yeah i mean if i'll back up a little this was an instagram post about uh the wsf world snowboard federation handing off control of the the WSPL, the World Snowboard Points List, to the FIS and what that meant. Um, and if if you follow professional snowboarding and especially all the different myriad organizations who have been involved over the years, this is kind of like the final thing. And of a 20-year story, really, isn't it? I mean, I know it goes back further if you go back to ISF days, but like since this this independent tour dream began, I mean, we're talking roughly 20 years, aren't we? Right. And I think, you know, the last dozen or so are probably the most significant as far as the the decline, right? Um, if I go back to 2011, that's when things were, I would say, were at the peak, right? There was a proposal from the TTR to the FIS to create a joint qualification system for the Olympics because it, that was right around when the FIS announced that Sochi was going to have slope style. And at the time, the FIS had no credible slope style events. They just didn't full stop, right? Um, they ran 
where was the world champs in 2012? It was Oslo. Oslo. No, no, no. Oslo. No, that was the TTR. Oh, sorry. Was, sorry, the fifth one. I was going to say, because we were, you, you, John, you were there with, that was when you were at Nike, right? And that was, uh, you were there with Spencer. And- yeah. And, and that was the first time when I believe the SLS judging system was rolled out in a. Yeah, I, I was there as, well. as a judge, actually, yeah. which was really bizarre. Great event. I think I wrote about that for ESPN, um, which, which dates it. <laughs> <laughs> there was, it was, I think in Spain somewhere, Sepe won. It was like the first FIS World Championships that had a slope style in it. And it was pretty clear that it was bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so TTR proposed to the FIS a joint qualification system. You know, that there was the TTR World Championships in Oslo in, in 2012, which was at the time sort of the pinnacle of, of like what was going on in pro snowboarding. And then the FIS, as they have done, re- rejected the proposal and said, we're going to do it on our own. And that was the, that was the beginning of the end, right? Um, because they could have accepted that. They could have moved forward. But the TTR at the time really was just like the top events, right? They had no bottom system. The bottom system was the, the WSF. So flash forward to, you know, 2016, I think, was like the last big TTR world champs in China. Um, and I, I think that was kind of the end for the TTR, right? It, it wasn't as well received as what was done. The pipe event was canceled. I mean, I, I was there for that one as well. And I was there role. as well. I was there for that as well. Yeah. And what just a quick one on that as well. What I remember really clearly about that, I remember talking to Reto and there was a huge talk about like China as a market. This huge talk about like using that because um, it was like it was live on Chinese state TV, wasn't it? And and, and was going to like a, like you know there was like oh, it's going to like a billion people kind of thing, and there was this whole there was this whole like um, hope that that would kind of act as a bit of a groundswell, wasn't there? Really, which obviously just did not come to fruition, to put it mildly. For some of the local organizers, it was a proof of concept that they could pull off the Olympics, right? Um, mm-hmm. but that's a whole other barrel of kettle of fish or something like that. Um, but, and then I guess after, <clears throat> excuse me, um, after world champs in 2016, in 2017, I think was when TTR and WSF became a joint organization and they kind of needed to do that because the top events were falling off and they needed these like feeder events and, you know, there was this sort of like gradual erosion of the top level events. I mean, the, the most obvious one I can think of was uh, Aaron Style. Like Aaron Style, you know, sold out to the FIS, became a FIS qualifier. Uh, Locks Open, which was the Burton European Open, which was a TTR event, became a FIS World Cup. So like gradually the FIS took on a lot of these top level events. Eventually, you know, what, what were the top level TTR events? cease to exist through one form or another and now the fist does have you know a legit tour because there's nothing left really as an alternative there's the x games and the do tour right um at least at a high level uh, there's likely some lower level ones i'm not thinking about so then i guess in 2019 there was a wsf fis like they agreed to co-manage this WSPL World Snowboards Point List, and I think they've had the right to manage it for the past four years. And this thing that re- recently happened was just a 
a formality of officially handing over the back end. But what it means is that what what was the TTR, you know, which has really been gone or eroding since 2017, I think is now sort of officially dead. What's the significance of that for you then? Because obviously in your post, which is why I kind of gave you a shout, you were, you know, you were a bit like, well, this is it, nailing the coffin, like end of the line, that sort of, that sort of lingo. Like what, like why, well, it's a two-part question. Why, why, is, why is it so significant from your perspective? And secondly, from that high point that you outlined in 2011, 2012, why it did seem like it was working, you know, how have we ended up here? That's a great question. I mean, the last big meeting I recall being part of was at Tina at the X Games. There was a meeting between all the riders and a bunch of folks from TTR. I happened to be there because I was there meeting with, with Red Bull, who was heavily involved. We were actually working on double pipe. Um, we had gone to Norway to look at a spot over there for double pipe. And, um, you know, Chaz, as you guys right, might recall, he had We Are Snowboarding, right? There was yeah. a fair, it was one of the times when the riders got quite involved. Terry obviously was quite involved. There was that that letter that was signed that was submitted to the FIS in 2011 prior to the Sochi announcement. You know, it was as strong as the rider's voice has ever been. And there was an agreement like, yes, this is what a qualification system should look like. These are the events that should be part of it, right? It would it would have been like some of the Opens, some of the X Games, the Dew Tour, the Aaron Style, like all the top, what were, you know, the pinnacle TTR events at the time. That's, that's what the riders wanted to ride to qualify for the Sochi Olympics. And Fist said, thanks, but no, proceeded to do their own thing. And, you know, that was it really that was the beginning of the end and then since then like i said a, a slow erosion by which either through attrition or acquisition fist took over some existing events and other ones just ceased to exist um and that brings us you know in in as short a route as i can find to get there to where we are today great summary yeah um where there's an official handover of you know, decades worth of data, right? I mean, that's that's what it amounts to at this point is like, here's all the results from all the events that ever mattered that created this WSPL. And why that's significant, I don't know. I, I mean, the historical record of competitive snowboarding being handed from one organization to another as a nerd, I'm like, well, that's it. That's the last asset, you know, like, it's a, just a bunch of a bunch of ones and zeros and rankings and whatnot, but it's it's gone from where it was to some new data handler, and now there's control of that has been given over to the organization that for a long time people thought there was a path to move away from. Yeah, I mean, it's I guess it's the symbolism of it, isn't it? Really, you know, this this because it is twenty years that this conversation has been going on in earnest. I guess. I guess I'm saying 20 years because of the Arctic Challenge, the TT, you know, that was like the, I, in my mind, always like the kind of official start point of this alternative tour TTR effort, like to, to wrest control away from FIS. And as you point out, even even up until like 10 years ago, there was it was still a really 
tangible conversation wasn't it i mean i wonder if it was just the fact that there's been two olympic cycles or three olympic cycles whatever it is since then you know events mean really that in the global consciousness that's what kind of it is now really you know and and that those events have such huge profile obviously and 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 on 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 a national mainstream on an international mainstream level that it 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 obviously gave the fist cause gives the fist cause such momentum you know especially when you start associating certain snowboarders with that some like sean white you know like i wonder if it's just that evolution in that way that's kind of it's kind of torpedoed it really you know it's a bit generational as well right because at that level in competitive snowboarding your shelf life as a rider is fairly limited so you know folks who were around for those meetings in 2011 2012 like they're not involved at a competitive level you know like there's there's folks like ourselves who are nerds who have been been part of it or written about it or you know, in John's case, you know, with there as a, as a team manager, the the role of the team manager today is completely different than it was when when the brands were the ones with the control. Right now, it's the na- the national teams who have the control, not the brands. I, I remember, you know, very distinctly in 2016 doing r- rider meetings at the World Snowboard Championships, and I had been out of competitive snowboarding for five years at that point. I got left Burton in 2011, had done the opens and rider meetings were riders and team managers. And in that room in China, it was just national team coaches, no riders, no team managers, just coaches. And I was like, this is bizarre. Right. And that was a single touch point for me having been sort of removed from the scene for five years. And I can only imagine like, as things have progressed, those national teams have gained more funding, more strength. There's more about the medals. There's more about like a path to the Olympics and getting people on the podium. And I'll admit the, the fist does now know how to run an event. They do have the right people to build a course. Like for a long time, they didn't have those things. They lacked the credibility in the space and they, they have done a good job figuring all that stuff out, right? Like if you remember the pipe in Sochi or the pipe in Vancouver, like, you know, early slope style events were horrible. Now the pipes are good. Slope style is good. Judging, judging is always going to be a thing. I don't necessarily fault them for that because I think everyone's been involved in events that have had judging challenges, myself included. Including um, quite recently. Yeah, you know, that's a whole other podcast, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> but... But all that said, like, I don't think modern competitive snowboarders even have a point of reference for what things were like before or what they could have been like had things gone gone down a different path. I also wonder how it is. What's the experience of those people in national teams now? Because, you know, if you look 10 years ago, like 2012, you had, as you say, brands involved, but you also had a couple of countries who were ahead, right? So the Norwegian Federation, the Swiss Federation, I mean, we always used to have like Jan Scherer would turn up at a brand new Audi and we're like, what is up with these Swiss guys? And, but they obviously had the sort of, they understood the relationship between uh, the Olympics, the FIS and the sort of the TTR world. And I wonder how it is now for um, a lot of these riders. Cause you also, not many of them even have like what you would term as a classic head to toe sponsorship. 
like who are doing these events. There seems to be a lot of people dressed in all black with monster stickers everywhere. Well, I mean, even even at the top level, right? Like, yeah. I, I don't want to name names, but there are, you know, Olympic podium athletes riding either non-brands or or just having custom product built for them because what they're doing at that level is sort of like unmarketable. Yeah, and I, again, I suppose it would be interesting if you're maybe next time we should do that, bring on like a couple of 18-year-olds who are in this space and like see how the experience is for them now because it's it's always easy to say, oh, well, it used to be like this. And I mean, the that sort of 2008, 2012, 14 period, it was, again, I wasn't a rider, I was a team manager, but looking at it, it felt that it all made sense. The, the way TTR was, you know, if you had a aspiring rider, they could go to, the Pleasure Jam in Dachstein, which was a four-star event, and then maybe they could go to Lavinia, which was a five-star event. And then if they do really well, they get an invite to European Open, and then maybe an Aaron Style, and there felt to be a progression. But it also allowed for, I don't know, someone like Torstein to film all year and still come and enter three events or four events and, and be part of the thing. So it's, it's kind of an interesting um, shift, you know. I, I was going to ask you, Liam, just sort of start wrapping up like this this shift in focus that we're kind of referring to from to more like you know the way that it's more like nationally run and 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 like the lack of sponsor you know, like all the things that we've outlined here how much does this play into what you're doing with natural selection in terms of because obviously the message from natural selection is so like and having experienced it as well myself like it is very rider-led like that is that is a legitimate thing and it, it, are you cognizant of of these developments when you build that event or are you just like no we just know what we're doing and it's like a we're just going to do our thing because that's what we believe is best for snowboarding i think it's a little bit of both uh, especially now that the fist has done a deal with uh free ride world tour right like they there will be an olympic path for free riding which seems crazy to me so i i don't know if i'm going to relive the past and have another situation where right? Like the fist starts investing all this money in free ride snowboarding and eventually tries to crush natural selection. <laughs> yeah. You're going to, you're in some like <laughs> Kafka-esque loop, loop of hell. You're going to have to relive it for another 20 years when they try and take over free riding. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully not. Um, but no, I mean, it, it is similar in a way in that natural selection is we're building it from the top down, right? We've, we've got what you would call in the TTR days, six star events with just the top riders. We have no feeder system and we're acutely aware of that, right? It's all invitational at this point. We have some wild cards for certain things, but the process by which you get onto the natural selection tour is not incredibly transparent, right? You can't just look at a a version of the WSPL and pick the top 16 ranked riders and invite them to the tour because there's there's no five-star, four-star, three-star, two-star but there are with Freeride World Tour, right? They have a, a global system. They have grassroots events. They have, you know, IFSA is, is a great organization. They do great work with juniors and men's and women's and ski and snowboard and, you know, at all levels. And you can go through that and get up onto the Freeride World Tour. Um, so, yeah, there's there's some parallels there. And I, I don't want to repeat history, but, you know, I think what we've been doing the past three seasons has been kind of laser focused on the top level riders and allowing them to do 
what they need to do and film and produce video parts and ride in the backcountry and perform at a high level and and show up and compete in what we feel like are really legit rider run events in the best conditions at the best venues right which there's there's definitely definite parallels there to what TTR was doing at the time right it was it was rider controlled it was really focused on the athletes and the venues and progressing the sport you know through half pipe slope style big air which obviously are different than you know Wyoming BC and Alaska as far as venues go but we we don't want to go places where people don't want to go or ride venues that people think are sketchy you know like there's there's things that you can compare although it is a bit apples and oranges well final question so what what should we expect this year from natural selection Uh, i would say more of the same constant evolution right we haven't done yet a season that was the same as the season before um you know, that's that's the beauty of being an independent organization is we can make up the rules as we go along, try new things. You know, I, I thought the duels this year were a really interesting new format, right? 12 small events instead of one big one. I didn't envy you with that, I must say. Um, well, I can only imagine the spreadsheets that were... Uh that were that were in use yeah a lot of people were like oh you don't have to do jackson that must be a relief and i'm like yeah i'd I'd take a single big event over 12 small ones yeah now i've got to organize 12 groups of snowboarders instead of what one big group of snowboarders um yeah and the and the filmers and the photographers and the editors and the post-production and yeah the workflow for that was kind of insane um I mean, we'll definitely be back at Revelstoke. That was an incredible first year partnership um, with that resort and the team from Selkirk Tangiers, Heli Ski. I mean, I think folks saw the outcome of our first efforts up there and it was pretty wild. That That's a whole episode in itself, just talking about that live production from the middle of nowhere. Um, and then, yeah, we, we did a new zone in Alaska, which was pretty wild. We'll see where we end up next year, but I, th- I think the name of the game for us as a startup is is constantly tweaking the knobs to figure out what works best for for us, for our partners, for the riders who are involved, for the industry. You know, because if if people ultimately aren't interested in what we're doing and they don't tune in and they don't find the uh, find the reason to be part of the thing, then it doesn't make sense. So let's let let's finish with um someone that caught your eye this week. So I'm gonna say Rachel Atherton, um, who's obviously just had uh, a daughter, um, and has been really open in a I think in a, a brilliantly refreshing way about how much we talked about this a little bit in the interview that we did, but a new mum and a professional athlete and how she's reconciled those two identities and how hard she's found that basically to go from being you know the badass world champion mountain biker to being a mom whose body worked in a different way and like who had to who had to go approach things differently she's just come back and won another world cup race um that is pretty amazing i think and i just love the way she she talks about she's just a brilliant role model i think like the way that she's had that discussion because that's still you know motherhood in this world 
it's still such a taboo like no one talks about it really um so i just thought that was brilliant and i just thought it was really worth mentioning i mean you're you're in team out in biking lauren i mean it's uh yeah it's 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 pretty amazing isn't it pretty amazing achievement yeah i mean it's 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 unreal as well and like i don't know you know i've spent a bit of time on the on the world cup circuit i guess just going to a couple of different races and obviously we've got fort william one of the big stops on on the world cup circuit and like again like the gopros and like the, the the footage just doesn't give that like the justice it deserves those like those downhill tracks at mac 10 are so fucking scary and yeah to to to, to do that as a new mother and just like reshape that whole you know it's either your motherhood or your career type thing i think it's just i think it's just an amazing achievement yeah it's, it's amazing what's uh what's what have you been impressed with recently probably from my travels in scandinavia um i was really impressed with copenhagen and how you know going back to the conversation we had earlier right about um the focus of individuals the article from callum um, when you go in Copenhagen, first of all, there's wonderful public transport, which gets you from airport to hotel. And then every hotel has a bike rental system. And then every road has a bike lane. And essentially, bikes are more important than cars. And so every cross section you come to, um, you'll see cars, you know, the, the poor drivers are sort of having their eyes in the back of the head. And the whole city is built around having people on bikes. And I just... Again, going back to our conversation earlier, you think if if more and more governments and councils and cities would approach sort of planning that way, it would make life easier for the individual to actually make a difference of say, right, I don't need a car, don't need this, um, don't need to take the train because you can travel good distances the way they've got it set up there in Copenhagen. Um, that was really good for me to see. And I, I just think it can be a They've probably had it like this for a long time, but it was it was also interesting after living in the US where very few people commute on either public transport or by bike. You know, it, it was interesting to go to Copenhagen. Everyone's like, oh, a lot of people smoke here. And it was obviously it was summer, so there was a lot of people drinking on the street. And I was like, there is not one person who's obese, right? And I was just thinking, if everyone was to ride bikes to and from work every day, the sort of whole need for a fitness industry, as they have, as we have in most places, would essentially dissipate, I would assume. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's considered a real magic bullet, isn't it, on like so many levels? Because you know, not only the, um, as you point out, the kind of environmental impacts, but yeah, the, the 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 individual health impacts, and then the collective impact on the on the healthcare system, just by that simple thing like just by increasing everybody's activity it's it's really significant and it's really it is why you know a certain breed of politician is so obsessed with increasing physical activity in in different societies so that because it's considered a way of like solving a huge number of like big ticket social health issues really so yeah i mean it's i mean in america fucking hell you, you ride a bike somewhere like it's, it's social social pariah aren't you you know like it's just so, so geared towards consumption cars being a big part of that yeah well, it's it's also you know when you ride a bike and you, you have to have the light crew you have to have the specialized but you have to have the gear you have to have the setup you have to ride fast and it's funny because you just see people on like you know business women on the way to work in a smart suit or 
you know, dad picking up two kids from school in like one of those bikes with space for two people. Um, actually saw one, one bloke two o'clock in the afternoon, he was riding his two friends who were both pissed off the head in the front basket of the thing. Yeah, they the, were cargo bike. <laughs> the cargo bike and he was just driving around town i thought god what a nice way to spend a saturday yeah there you go <laughs> that'd be you soon lauren <laughs> yeah that's why i need a cargo bike into Aviemore. what about you lauren what's uh what what's caught your eye this last week or two do you know i've got to admit because i've had my head so far into kirgham national park stuff i've not really had much time to kind of gander around but um I think Manon's film for me, actually, in the last couple of weeks, that's really what's caught, caught my eye. Winds of Change, right? Is that what it's called? Winds of Change, yeah. Um, yeah, done by uh, Tommy at, at Dwaco. Um, uh, yeah, Tommy Wilkinson, legend. Um, and Manon. And I just think, you know, it, it, we were talking about Rachel there. Uh, you know, Manon was obviously one of Rachel's huge rivals. And our competitors and like to see Manon come out of you know downhill performance racing and to have this take this different career path and really sort of connect with what's important to her um and take her sort of sponsors with her I think or 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 attract the sponsors um that you know want to support that type of work has been has been great and you know Manon's uh, done the film she's going on tour that event a couple of weeks ago we did was actually with Trash Free Trails as well so it was a power Trash Free Trails and uh, the local trail association night um, so we, ra- we raised some money from the, for the local trail association uh, that evening to put back into the trails but Manon's you know gotten specialised to to put up a bike for us so um, half the money will go to Protector Winters and half the money will go to the Scottish Development Mountain Biking in Scotland Trail Fund. And like that for me is just it's so amazing to see an athlete come out of that high performance arena and really connect with, yeah, what they love, make a movie about it and and is, and is pushing. I think Manon's done a, done a brilliant job there and she's done it really authentically as well, which is, which is just awesome to see. Well, I think um, that's online now, isn't it? Because I put it in the ten things of the day, yeah. So you could, yeah, you could just do a search for that, and you can, yeah, you can see it, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Para Legends. Um, let's see if we can manage to arrange the next one in under three weeks. That'll be that'll be the next goal. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Well, that's why. Uh, yeah, you've got me doing it in the middle of the girls' barbecue, so I'm, I'm going to go back to that. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> So there you go. That was the very first episode of this new Looking Sideways Roundtable format. Like I said in the episode, turns out Alex Honnold calls his podcast Roundtable. So maybe I'll change the name. That's how loose I'm rolling with this. But I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know what you think. Leave a comment on Substack. Share it on social. Hit me up at We Look Sideways on Instagram. You know, just let's help get it out there if you did enjoy it. Um I'll be back um, with another version of this in six weeks or so with John and Lauren and some of the topics and some of the guests. Uh, In the meantime, I'll be back this coming Sunday with my next normal episode with Gilly MacArthur. So have a great week and I'll see you next time. Nice one.